Blog Talk Radio. Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Batman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. Hey, 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 what's cracking? And welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I'm your host, Darren Fatman McDuffie. And this episode is being brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com. Make sure you go over there and check the website out. Before we get into tonight's show, tonight's show is going to be really good. I'm already calling it a classic just simply because we are discussing some unconventional things that most people don't like to discuss, and we'll be talking a little bit about that um, tonight. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to just let you know, go to the archives and go back and listen to the previous shows, particularly last week's show that I did with Dr. Peter Osborne. We were talking about gluten and grain, no grain, no pain. And all things that are going around when it comes to uh, gluten, I share a little bit about my story, about my gluten sensitivity. I've been off gluten for probably like seven or eight years now and feel totally good and won't probably ever go back to eating gluten. And I try to stay away uh, from grains as much as I can. As always, please connect with me on social media so you get the, the latest shows. Things are really, really growing. I'm really pleased with the show and getting a lot of lot more guests. A lot more people are coming to the forum to talk a little bit more about nutrition. If you have not, please connect with me on Twitter at thefat underscore man. Also, check out my Facebook fan page at facebook.com slash I'm the fat man. And fat is spelled with a PH, not an F, so a PH. I'm also on Pinterest if you can find me there. I think I'm the fat man one on Pinterest. And um, what other social media am I on? I can't remember right now. But all right, so let me read our, our guest tonight is uh, Pam Kalina. I almost said doctor. I always interview doctors, but Pam is a nutritionist, and let me read her bio. Pam Kalina is the co-author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Great Bird Flu Hoax, and author of the books Addiction, The Hidden Epidemic, and the newly released Survival of the Unfittest, which we'll be talking about tonight, How Wisdom Will Save Humans from Falling into Extinction. She has been independently independently studying nutrition and natural health for almost 30 years. Pam Colleen, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you tonight? I'm great, Darren. Thanks for having me on your show. Great. Your, Can- your uh, vocals are coming through loud and clear. You're probably the most clearest person I've had on my show thus far. So, um, oh, that's great. I'm glad the line is clear. Let me know if there's a problem, though. <laughs> I will. I will. You've been studying nutrition for 30 years, Pam. Uh, what got you into nutrition? Well, it was when my health collapsed in the 80s, Darren. So I go way back in this field. I mean, when I collapsed in the 80s, I collapsed with chronic fatigue and uh, brain fog. And eventually I was diagnosed with uh Um, multiple chemical sensitivities, and ADD. I was a very, very sick person starting in the 1980s, so I was in my early 20s. And I first started out uh, this adventure by going to medical doctors, and I realized very soon, you know, within about six months, that there was nothing they could do to help me get well. And then I started going to naturopaths and realized that, you know, I wasn't getting a lot of help there either. I mean, this is how incredibly toxic my body was. It took a lot of work uh, to turn this situation around. 
So I basically almost uh, lost all of my 20s and 30s. I was very, very ill for all those uh, decades. And um, I did a lot of things wrong while I was trying to get well. And uh, basically I learned a lot from doing a lot of things wrong. Uh, and so eventually when I found out the work of Dr. Weston A. Price and I st- started understanding the importance of animal fat in the diet, that's when I was able to really start turning my situation around. It, it took me a long time to get to that point. It took me making a lot of mistakes, uh, which actually in hindsight I'm grateful that I made those mistakes uh, because I wouldn't have actually found the right answers in the long run. Yeah, it seems like everybody has a, a similar story. Did I cut you off? I'm sorry. No, not at all. I just, uh, you know, this that's my life in a nutshell. I could go on for hours, of course, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, it just it. Seems that's like it in a nutshell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everyone has that similar story. Either they were um, sick at one time, and that's how they came in to start helping others in the nutrition. My own personal story was my mom got sick and eventually ended up passing away, and that's how I got into nutrition. But it seems like everybody has that, that similar story. In, in your book, This quote kind of grabbed me, and I think it was near the beginning of the book, and I wanted you to kind of expand on it a little bit. It says that um, as a species, we have become our own worst enemies. Can you kind of explain that? Because I've always thought I had this thing where I wrote something a while back where saying human beings are going to become extinct like dinosaurs. But can you expand a little bit on that quote in the book? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's really uh, too bad how humans ourselves, we have been sabotaging our health. And in the book, I try to emphasize that um, it's really, you know, about greed and incompetence, right? That you and I uh, didn't consciously go in to make the wrong decisions about our health. In other words, you and I didn't knowingly choose a low-fat diet thinking, you know, uh, there were going to be adverse effects from it. But we, you and I both had to learn the hard way that this was to be so, right? But we didn't make these decisions uh, because we're bad people or because we're not intelligent. We made these decisions because we believed in the people who were touting the benefits of, say, a low-fat diet. And so for this reason, we have become our own worst enemies because, you know, we uh, believed our own species. We believed people from the human uh, species for saying, you know, if you follow a low-fat diet, you know, this is going to lead to uh, better health. And ultimately what we were listening to were people who had nothing but financial uh, interest involved in promoting that type of advice. So we were listening to the universities, you know, to uh, science essentially that has been bought and sold by industry. We've been listening to quote-unquote, you know, pseudo-experts in the government. We've been listening to the media. We've been listening to all the wrong people in terms of getting our health advice. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, as I alluded to earlier, we have to learn the hard way in terms of trying to find, uh, you know, the the diamond in the rough, if you will, in, in terms of finding the correct information. And it's really a shame, you know, it's really a shame that greed and incompetence has really led to this healthcare crisis that we're seeing today. And we really need to be more discerning as a species in order to be able to differentiate the truth from a lot from the lie. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. It just seems like everything, even the whole cholesterol thing and the fat thing it was all based upon flawed science and I had Denise Manger on uh, a couple months ago talking about that whole thing the food pyramid and how it came about and how um, the uh, Ansel Keys was just based upon flawed science and people just pick, picked, it up, picked it up and ran with it um, Pam, one of the things that concerns me is that uh, 
maybe five or six years ago, I had maybe two coworkers of mine who were couldn't get pregnant. They were on fertility drugs. I had one friend of mine who would always leave work to go do some kind of fertility thing, and she ended up getting pregnant and, and ultimately having twins. But I always wondered why were these two women having problems um, having having children? Why are our fertility rates actually declining at this point in time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of the main reasons I wrote the my my most recent book, Survival of the Unfittest, is because of issues like that. Uh, it's tragic when couples cannot conceive and they desperately want to have babies, and then of course they have to spend potentially hordes of money on uh, all these fertility treatments, and there are consequences in many cases. There are some detrimental side effects to doing some of these treatments. And yet, when you look at the work of Dr. Weston A. Price, and I'm sure, uh, Darren, you've talked a lot about his work on your show, um, when he studied primitive cultures, uh, and he could see how radiantly healthy these primitive cultures were as long as they were following their traditional diets. And one of the things in these uh, primitive cultures, one of the things that they did was they had food that was reserved for parents-to-be. And a lot of uh, the themes in many, many different cultures around the world, a lot of the themes around these sacred foods uh, were that they were rich in what are known as the fat-soluble vitamins. So they were really fatty animal foods that were reserved for couples to be. So in one culture... It might have been, you know, fish eggs, you know, uh, from salmon, salmon eggs, for example. Those, uh, that particular food would have been reserved for parents to be because they knew that this food would um, increase the fertility of the couple. And uh, potentially even here in uh, North America, the Native Indians, they would use bear fat, for example, to help enhance the fertility of a couple. So it was always around, you know, fatty animal foods where they would use these sacred foods to enhance fertility in couples or parents-to-be. And it's unfortunate that, you know, over the last 40, 50 years, we've been reducing our consumption of fatty animal foods, and yet we've been seeing an increase in problems with fertility. I mean, even sexuality as a whole, uh, we've been seeing all sorts of problems. So it's not just about reduced fertility. We see problems with erectile dysfunction. We see problems with, you know, uh, increased rates of stillborns, uh, miscarriages, and so on. We're seeing all sorts of issues with regards to human sexuality, and it, it relates to uh, this uh, horrid advice that we're getting around eating a low-fat diet. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people are kind of coming around, but you still have people out there who are actually afraid of fat. In your book, you mentioned that one of the telltale signs that a woman who is unhealthy is if she's having irregular, uh, an irregular menstruation cycle. Can you kind of um, expand on that a, a bit? Oh, I mean, that it jumped out at you in my book. It jumps out at a lot of people. But unfortunately, you know, when you see women who have an irregular cycle or who have issues with PMS, uh, Darren, you probably agree with me on this. I mean, it's being normalized, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, pe- people laugh at that today. Oh, you know, she's grumpy. She's irritable. She has PMS. Oh, you know, it's... Uh, you know, it's normal, right? No, it's not normal, ladies. It is not normal for women to have irregular cycles or irritability or, uh, you know, a swollen, uh, sore breasts before uh, menstruation. All of these types of symptoms are a red flag screaming to the woman that she needs to pay attention to her health 
and she needs to do more to regulate her cycle. And um, it's one of the it's one of the signs that you know if you're not having a regular cycle, if you are having PMS symptoms, then then there are going to be more problems later in life, and that includes problems with um, you know uh, with basically having a family. And and it's really tragic that teenage girls today are um, being swept into this idea that they should be following a low-fat diet and or even worse, Darren, following vegetarian or vegan diets. And that's only going to exacerbate the problem. Yeah, and based on your experience, you've been doing this for 30 years. You're probably like the Jedi of nutrition. But based upon your your, uh, experience with this, have you seen where – one thing that I've always seen is that women are more ask, uh, apt to ask for help, whereas men kind of have to be falling apart. Unless there's something wrong with us sexually, then that's when we want to get help. And this is coming from a male perspective, and I know this because when I just started coming into nutrition, I really had to start paying attention to my body, and I was still afraid to ask for help uh, in some aspects. But are you seeing that women are the ones who are – the ones who want to ask for help versus men have to kind of be falling apart and be on their last leg before they, they reach out for assistance. Oh. oh, listen, I can't agree with you more on this, and this is something I uh, raise often. It's an issue I raise often with my clients. I touched on this in my second book, which was called Addiction, the Hidden Epidemic, and that is when there are mood issues involved, when there's depression, when there's fatigue, when there's brain fog, anxiety, OCD, things like that, that men are far less likely to come forward and ask for help. Women, on the other hand, are going to be more likely to come forward and ask for help. And so men, uh, for a large part, are actually suffering in silence. And really, it's very, very tragic that this is happening to men. I mean, they are supposed to be the superheroes. They are supposed to go to work nine to five. They are supposed to be the breadwinners. Uh, they have to keep a stiff upper lip, right? Um, and yet millions of men are going to work every single day and pretending life is okay, they're pretending that they're feeling all right. And they really are not. Um, a lot of my work involves uh, helping people who have these chronic conditions, fatigue, depression, brain fog, anxiety, OCD, insomnia, low libido, etc. And um, you know, men are not exempt from these issues. In fact, uh, they're just as equally at risk as having these conditions as women, um, but they're far less vocal about uh, going through these conditions. And because they're, um, you know, there's so there's so much um, stereotype involved in, you know, talking about these conditions. Men don't want to appear to be weak, and so you know, they, they like I said earlier, they just they want to they end up suffering in silence, which is really really very tragic, but. Um, you know, I work with these conditions every single day, and I can tell you they are completely reversible. It does, however, take a lot of work to undo the damage that's been done, um, you know, to create these types of symptoms in people. But uh, I just don't like the idea that people are living at a suboptimal level. So I want to see people running on all eight cylinders, as I usually uh, say. Uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of people, millions of people, are running on four cylinders three cylinders, two cylinders, one cylinder, and it's just not necessary. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, I agree with you there. I know I had a big problem a couple of years ago with my adrenals. I finally got them in check, but I, I would always get tired at a certain time of the day and could not figure out why I was getting tired until I went to see someone, and she kind of pointed me in the uh, right direction. 
Now, let's get into this this whole vegan, vegetarian thing. And for those out there who are listening, I don't care what you eat. <laughs> you eat what you eat. Don't attack me. But um, I've heard this on a couple of different things that I've listened to. And reading your book, I know that you were a former uh, vegetarian. You actually had Chris Master John in there, who was actually, I think, a former vegetarian as well. But you seem to be against the vegan, vegetarian diet. Tell us why. Well, I, I'm a recovering uh, raw food vegan. I did it for nine years. And um, so I started uh, that particular branch of uh, investigation back in 1990. So it's been a long time. And so I've had a lot of years to uh, observe and uh, not just go through my own experience, but to observe what has happened to others, especially those who became uh, vegetarian or, or vegan circa 1990. So please don't anybody think I don't have a lot of experience at this because I do. And um uh, it really comes down to, it's really unfortunate, but it really comes down to vegetarians and vegans having to learn the hard way. I had to learn the hard way. My clients uh, who are recovering vegetarians or vegans, they had to learn the hard way. And it's unfortunate because there's so much misinformation out there around the alleged healthfulness of a vegetarian or vegan diet. But really, I don't see it, Darren. And I work with this every single day. Unfortunately, I have to deal with the fallout from people who have been uh, either vegetarian, near vegetarian, or vegan. And I have to see the fallout of the side effects of these diets in people every single day. And what is most tragic is when I have to work with the children of the mother in particular who had been vegetarian or near vegetarian or vegan. I have to help the the child uh, undo the damage or the malnutrition from of having uh, been exposed to that any one of those three diets, especially where the vegan diet is concerned. I'm going to see far more uh, damage uh, because of that diet than from the other two, but I, I'm not absolving those other two diets, the near-vegetarian and the uh, vegetarian diets. I'm not absolving those diets because I see a, a lot of damage from those two diets as well, but the vegan diet is going to be even worse. And people need to realize that the vegan diet was invented uh, in order to kill the libido. That was the intention of the diet to begin with historically. A vegetarian diet was invented as a knee-jerk reaction to an overpopulation problem because it's just simply easier to feed millions of people plant-based foods. Uh, plant-based foods are easy, easier to produce, easier to ship, and have better shelf life than plant foods. So it's easier to feed millions of people in small geographical areas plant-based foods. Animal foods are a nuisance to produce. And it doesn't justify uh, this kind of transition in our diet because, of course, uh, if you are following a vegetarian, near-vegetarian, or a vegan diet, the chances are you're going to eventually manifest symptoms such as depression, brain fog, anxiety, low libido, memory problems, insomnia. You're going to you know, get, eventually develop any or all of these symptoms. And I don't think any or all any of those symptoms or all of those symptoms are going to be sustainable for humankind in the long run. So it's not sustainable to be depressed, to be fatigued, to be brain fogged, to, to be infertile. It's just simply not sustainable. And this argument about following a vegetarian or a vegan diet because it's more sustainable just doesn't uh, hold any mustard because, uh, I'm sorry, the vegetarians and the vegans that I meet – uh, come to me complaining that they have no desire to have sex. So, 
<laughs> so that's just not sustainable, Darren. <laughs> you know, and it's really sad because when people are are following these diets, they're doing it for all sorts of altruistic altruistic reasons. They think it's really good for the planet. It's really good for the uh, for humankind and so on. And they're doing it for all the alleged right reasons, but it's it's not accurate. The information that they're getting is not accurate. Uh, I believed it for nine years, Darren. I thought that the you know a vegan diet was incredibly healthy and good for the planet. Uh, but of course, I ended up having to basi- basically come to near death before I realized that it was not healthy at all. Um, you know, there are no vegan cultures anywhere on this planet, and um, your um, ancestral lineage is probably from Africa. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Probably mm-hmm. from Africa, and my ancestral lineage is from uh, Northern Europe, so I'm Irish, uh, Scottish descent, and nowhere in your genes, nowhere in my genes. Uh, is there any history of a vegetarian or, or vegan diet? You know, our ancestors survived and thrived on a diet very high in animal fat. And um, to, to think that I could change my diet and get away with it in one generation was just, in hindsight now, I look at it and I see how ridiculous it was. But I had to learn the hard way. I had to learn the hard way, Darren. Yeah, I guess everybody does. But why does why does... Certain people do really good on a vegan diet for a very long time, and then certain people you have you start seeing symptoms. I believe I listened to someone who said they had like a ton of cavities. Some people get depression. Some people get you know their what we call skinny fat. But why does that happen? Where some people can sustain on it for a while? Is it just genetics or? No, I don't. But I don't agree with that. I just, uh, you know, I I deal with biochemistry, right? I'm trained in a very specific field of biochemistry, and biochemistry is just very black and it's very white. I mean, I, I it just doesn't lie. And um, when uh, people claim to be healthy on these diets, a lot of them are, are closet meat eaters. You have to realize that. And on top of that. <laughs> They are not going to be very forthcoming in terms of their symptoms. So they're not going to tell you they don't have a sex drive. They don't. The guys aren't going to tell you that their sperm counts are reduced. They won't even know. Uh, the ladies won't tell you that they're not ovulating. They won't know. Um, you know, they're just not going to be forthcoming about their symptoms, Darren. Uh, you know, as long as they're not diagnosed with cancer, they believe themselves to be healthy. You know, and and unfortunately, I know some people who've been vegan for um, you know a long, long time. You know, thirty years. And, um, and you know, I'm telling you right now, they're just not healthy people. But they go around touting that they are healthy. But if you look at them, they look like, you know, hell warmed over. They're not healthy at all. Mm-hmm. Why are animal fats uh, very important to our diet? And this is something I didn't even – I knew that animal fats were important for the cholesterol, and the cholesterol makes the sex hormones. But there was one specific thing in there that I did not know before actually reading your book and um, – can you just tell us why animal fats are important? Oh gosh, they're important for so many different things, Darren. Um, uh, you know, they're they're crucial for the health of the cell membrane. They're crucial for um, you know brain health, for lung health, for the health of the kidneys. Uh, they're crucial for uh, adrenal function. Uh, so um, what I deal with is trying to resuscitate the adrenal glands, of course, and when. The, when an individual is following a diet low in animal fat, they're just not going to get the correct fuel for supporting the adrenal function. So adrenal function um, gets impaired. And one of the things the adrenal glands uh, need to do is they actually are in control of the balance of minerals in the body. And under that umbrella, they're also responsible for 
kicking out unwanted metals, okay? And what they do is they send out a protein in the body to grab at these unwanted metals and escort them to your bile, B-I-L-E. And bile is necessary in order to break down these long-chain fatty acids that are coming from things like butter and red meat and eggs and so on. And when we're eating a low-fat diet, of course, bile, not only do we weaken our adrenal glands, our bile goes to sleep. And because bile is one of the main exit routes for unwanted metals, of course, um, bile, you know, we get backed up with all sorts of uh, unwanted metals, whether they be uh, metals like copper or aluminum, um, you know, lead, mercury, whatever the case may be. We start getting backed up with excess uh, unwanted metals. And that's why my clients call themselves toxic cesspools <laughs> but we need the bile to be present or we need the animal fat to be present in order to stimulate bile and unfortunately today uh, you know i think we're supposed to be producing some somewhere in the vicinity of a, a quart of bile a day and because we've been following a low-fat diet of course we're underproducing um, bile we're, we're just we're not getting proper bile production or bile, bile flow so um, so we're, we're just completely backed up, Darren, is the issue. And so when people start eating animal fat, when they start learning about the importance of animal fat, what ends up happening is, is the animal fat sits in their bellies and doesn't feel right. And so they think, you know, Weston A. Price Foundation is wrong and, you know, all these people uh, touting the benefits of animal fat, you know, that they're wrong and so on. But that's not the case. It's that the person has done so much damage to their biochemistry and has shunted uh, the production and flow of bile so much that when they eat animal fat, it doesn't feel right in their bodies. And so it can take time before people actually adjust uh, to eating animal fat again, which they should never have given up in the first place. But um, So they need to do a lot to train their bile to start behaving properly. And some of the things people can do in order to help uh, try and um, get the bile to cooperate would be to incorporate a lot of uh, sour and tart foods into their diet. So that can be um, things like sauerkraut, that can be lemon water, that can be apple cider vinegar, it could be pickles. It can be a lot of those types of foods. You have to make sure you're eating a lot of those types of foods in order to help support the bile. So please, if, you've, if you're uh, eating animal fat in, in the diet, if you're actually going back to the way we should be eating, uh, and it doesn't feel right in your bellies, please don't blame the food. It, it has more to do with your biochemistry and the fact that you've uh, shunted your bile production and bile flow. And when, when my clients get their bile flowing properly, that's when they start reporting that their brain fog, their fatigue, their lethargy, their apathy, you know, all of these types of symptoms start dissipating is when their bile starts to flow properly. And quite honestly, Darren, that is a huge chore. <laughs> it can take a long time to get the bile to cooperate. Yeah, I try to tell people, you mentioned in the book, too, the coffee animals. I do one of those every week, and that's helped me. I've been doing that for like three or four years, and I always tell people, do a coffee and a coffee enemas. But people are so afraid of their own bodies with these with these enemas. But, hey, do a coffee enemas. Oh, no, I won't even... I won't even work with people who aren't doing coffee enemas. They're just wasting my time. You know, uh, you have to do the coffee enemas to to tone the liver. And I got to tell you, Darren, there is a ton of misinformation out there about coffee enemas, and it's probably coming from the stool softener industry or the laxative industry. You know, <laughs> it's just, yeah, there was. I tell a, you, it, there was just an article <laughs> that the Healthy Home Economist had, and I shared it in my fan page about. 
um, the coffee enema. Can't I, I forget what what it was? Oh, the fact that it kind of disrupts the uh, gut flora. And she wrote a really oh. good article about that, and I shared it in my fan page. It's just it seems like. For one thing that's healthy, we find some way to poke at it and poke at it to find a way. To, yeah, you have to follow the money, though. Yeah. yeah. I mean, coffee enemas are the least ex- least expensive, most effective way to tone the liver and resuscitate bile, right? And there are a lot of competing interests that don't want you to know about coffee enemas. And so when you hear that type of misinformation about coffee enemas, you really do need to take a step back. And, you know, as you know, and as many of your listeners know, it can take some practice to get used to doing the coffee enemas. Um, but really, I mean, you don't want to be taking all sorts of milk thistle and dandelion. You don't want to be doing those things, and it's unfortunate because it'd be nice if there were a quick fix for this, but uh, unfortunately herbal remedies really are not uh, not the way to go in, in this regard because unfortunately things like milk thistle and dandelion can contain high amounts of cadmium, nickel, and fluoride, which are naturally picked up uh, from the soil, so they can actually uh, throw off your biochemistry and not really accomplish uh, the job that you're looking for. But that type of information about the coffee enemas, you see, is it doesn't make a lot of sense because you're really only putting about two cups of coffee and it's only going as far as your sigmoid colon, number one. Mm. And number two, in order to really truly balance uh, your minerals in your body, and that includes your colon, right, you have to get your bile going so that you can uh, absorb the, the fat and therefore absorb the minerals. So you have to take a step back when you hear that kind of information because ultimate, ultimately, to support your mineral balance, you need to do everything you can to tone your liver and resuscitate bile. And coffee enemas are one of the best ways to do that. Yeah, I would agree with you. I do mine every Saturday. I used to do them on Sundays, and then I figured out I couldn't go to sleep for work the next morning on Monday. So I was like, no, i got to start doing these things <laughs> on, uh, on Saturday. I'm very uh, sensitive to caffeine. Some people out there may not be, but I know that um, I'm sensitive to caffeine, and it kind of wakes me up. But that's that's the benefit actually outweighs the risk of, of doing those. Um, reading your book, I got the feeling that if I'm walking down the street and I was looking for a mate, that I should be choosing my mate by how they look. Are they healthy? Are they... <laughs> Are they, you know, they're not foaming at the mouth and looking like um, the walking dead or something like that. But should we be choosing our mate based upon health? If this person is, if the male is healthy and the female is healthy, how, how, what, what are your feelings about? I tell my clients I'm going to start a dating service. (laughs) (laughs) And it's only for clients that are getting healthy and, you know, heading in the right direction. Uh, Because I see a lot of heartache, Darren. I see a lot of heartache. And um, it's really quite tragic. I see a lot of couples who are trying to hold on to their marriage and they can't really hold on to their marriage because one or both of them is struggling with chronic fatigue, depression, brain fog, anxiety, low libido. Um, you know, it's it's really very tough to stay married when one or both partners is very, very sick. And of course, you know, they remember themselves as being radiantly healthy. They remember themselves as falling madly deeply in love. But after one decade, after two decades, after three decades, they become more and more and more toxic. And um, so hormones, neurotransmitters become uh, compromised, mood becomes compromised, and they eventually find out they're just not getting along. But it's not that they didn't get along. When they were healthy, they got along. 
so I love working with couples who uh, are trying to save their marriage um, by getting healthy. They they realized that at one point they were in love, at one point they were healthy, and they want to get back to that state. So I love working with uh, couples in that regard. But if you're single, I tell my single clients, wait until you're healthy before you go out and find a mate. Because when you're unhealthy, what ends up happening, I find often, is you end up um, like a magnet. You will attract somebody who's unhealthy. And then you have two people together who have chronic fatigue, depression, brain fog, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not going to lead to a long-term, happy, sustainable relationship. So absolutely, if you want to be in a very healthy relationship, it's very important to get yourself healthy first. And hopefully then you will be a magnet to, to attract somebody who is also healthy. Um, it's it's <laughs> it's so mainstream in my world, Darren, to talk about these things. But and I can't... You know, when I talk like this out in public, it's very intangible to people, I find. I, I I just don't think a lot of people are ready for this information because so many millions of people have chronic fatigue, brain fog, depression, anxiety, and all they're doing every single day is they're faking it until they make it. Uh, they are just pretending to be healthy. They paint a smile on their faces. Uh, they pretend as if they're enjoying, you know, um, making love with their partners. You know, they, they're just not happy and they're not healthy enough in order to be happy. And and that's it's, it's we have a long road ahead of us in order to help get this message out. I, I just I just get so um, upset every single day when I see the heartache that's going on in relationships today. I see the heartache in people who are single and longing to be in a relationship, but they are having trouble finding a healthy healthy mate. Um, but I ask them just to be patient. I do. I just ask them to be patient, get themselves healthy first, and then to be patient because um, hopefully we're going to start seeing this healthcare crisis turn itself around, and hopefully people will be able to find a healthy partner because it's only healthy people who are really going to be able to uh, end up having healthy children. One of your quotes in your book kind of raised my eyebrow, and that was the one I think I paraphrased and put it on <clears throat> Facebook. Excuse me. And in that quote, you said that a lot of couples are not having sex because of the intimacy; they're actually having sex. One of one or the other partners having sex out of obligation. Let, let's mm-hmm. talk about that because that was hard for me, me to believe that actually you're in a marriage and you're two people and you don't have sex out of in- intimacy. You're having sex because the partner may get mad because you won't have sex with them. Right. I, I have this conversation on a regular basis with my clients and um, it's it goes under the umbrella of faking it until they make it that he or she has little to no libido, they have little to no energy to begin with, right? So without the energy, then, of course, uh, the, a sexual act is a luxury, right? There's, if there's not an, a lot of energy, then, you know, <laughs> an act of sex is, is a real luxury. So they fake it until they make it in order to um, keep the marriage alive. But, you know, it's, it's not a real pleasure for them. You know, they do not feel the lust. They do not feel the bond. Uh, You know, you have to have energy to have those feelings. And unfortunately, millions and millions of people out there today are not feeling the intimacy, are not feeling the bond. They're, they may be able to achieve an orgasm, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's certainly not to the depth that, that they should be experiencing and, and enjoying it at. 
Yeah, I had on here that only 29% of women reach orgasm during sex as opposed to 75% in men. Is that because men just don't know what they're doing or women are too stressed out to be relaxed and enjoy themselves? It has a lot to do with um, copper. It has a lot to do with copper uh, mm-hmm. because copper, uh, it's hard to not be copper toxic today and copper has a tight relationship with estrogen in the body. And women are going to be more affected by copper than men. And I'm not saying men are exempt by any stretch of the imagination. They are going to also be adversely affected by copper. But women are going to be more affected adversely by the copper. And so... Um, Women uh, also were more more apt to have followed a low-fat diet, so they're going to have weaker adrenal glands. They're going to have more impaired uh, bile production than men. And so, uh, you know, this, these are some of the things that are going to lead to women struggling more with libido issues, um, more in terms of um, mood issues, you know, chronic fatigue, depression, etc. And And... <laughs> Don't don't uh, mistake me for, you know, just saying women 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 are going to end up with these problems. It's it's not. It's uh, there are millions of men who are also struggling with these issues. It's just me- women tend to be uh, affected more than men by uh, these types of symptoms. So it's it's copper. When copper goes up, estrogen goes up. It's is what it is. I, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Lead. And, uh, Lead, copper, these are all estrogen mimickers. I mean, if you look at the decline of the Roman Empire, a lot of uh, mm-hmm. historians believe that what brought down the Roman Empire was the copper or the lead toxicity back then. And uh, it's really no different today with the copper toxicity. We have copper pipes. We have, um, you know, copper being added to municipal water supplies as an antifungal. You know, we are being bombarded uh, with our exposure to copper. And I don't know anybody uh, anywhere in North America today that wouldn't be copper toxic. It is such a problem in society. Uh, you know, it's it's really very difficult to to get the copper in balance in the body with um, your minerals, with other minerals like zinc. So copper, you have to realize, is going to impair, is going to interfere with your uh, the balance of hormones in your in your body. And this is one of the mysteries. This is one of the greatest secrets I've been able to uh, be privy to over the last um, seven or eight years is to understand how much copper plays a role in terms of your mood and in terms of your sexuality. Yeah, and I I used to do a podcast with um, a friend of mine named Diane Kayser, and she was talking about her copper IUD and how it kind of affected her mood until she got rid of it. I wanted to kind of go back over the animal fats thing because we didn't talk about the the role of vitamin A and how it actually protects us and then mm-hmm. also how it counteracts. I think you just said a little bit about it, but how animal fats actually counteract that copper. Right. Well, the the thing about um, vitamin A is, uh, as you know, it's present in the animal fat, especially from animals who've been outside on pasture. And vitamin A is essential for triggering bile. And toxins in general, one of their main exit routes is going to be through bile. And I can't remember if I put it in the book, um, but there was a book back in the 1800s that was um, addressing how to uh, detoxify yourself if you were ever exposed to a poison. So back in the 1800s, they knew to detoxify the body by giving the patient uh, in many cases, things like butter or tallow, because they knew intuitively back then that you know the animal fat was critical for triggering bile, and that the toxins needed to come out through the bile. 
And so, again, what, what is in the animal fat, it is vitamin A. So we need animal fat or, if you will, vitamin A in order to neutralize a lot of the toxicity that we are exposed to today. And this will make sense to people as they increase their intake of animal fat. You will actually, as you improve your production of bile, as you increase your um, ability to digest animal fats, you will actually feel what it is I'm talking about. Um, Because if you get a flu or if you are exposed to food poison or something along that line and your bile is cooperating, you're going to see that your recovery rate, for example, is going to be that much faster. Yeah, and it's what the zinc that's in the animal fat or the animal meats that actually helps counteract the copper? Well, it, the reason why, another reason why uh, we become copper toxic, it's not just because of the copper pipes and it's not just because of adding copper to municipal water supplies. It's mm-hmm. because uh, red meat is one of the best sources of zinc. And because we have become red meat phobic, we have reduced our, re- our consumption of red meat, which means, of course, we've reduced our uh, consumption of zinc. And we need that red meat in order to counteract uh, the uh, excess copper that we're being exposed to in society. So this is one of the reasons why I'm going to see vegetarians and vegans being sicker than my mm. near-vegetarians. At least my near-vegetarians are eating some red meat, so they're getting some zinc in order to help counteract the uh, the copper. They're still not probably going to get enough, but at least they're not uh, manifesting as many symptoms as my vegetarians and especially my vegans is because um, because of this factor. I mean, this red meat phobia, as you know, Darren, I'm sure you've covered it quite a bit on your show, you know, this red meat phobia is is nonsensical. I mean, how could an old-fashioned food be causing modern-day uh, illnesses? It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I fell into it. I fell into it, hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> everybody's scared of it. There's always some study coming up saying red meat causes cancer, or and everybody's just phobic of, uh, of red meat. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about before we kind of get into the – the, the end of the show was the pill was the the birth control pill, and how it actually ends up saving you from pregnancy but ends up killing your libido, which is kind of like a shot in the foot <laughs> but mm-hmm. a bit about about the pill yeah, no, it's sacrilege for me to say anything negative about the pill, isn't it um yet. I talk to a lot of women um, who have been on the birth control pill. And, of course, unfortunately, it led to the – because the birth control pill is going to, of course, increase uh, copper in the body as well. And that's – you end up being – it stays trapped in the body, so you end up being symptomatic for potentially the rest of your life. But um, it leads to a lot of mood issues, and, of course, it can um, certainly, in many, many women, um, not all, but in many women, it can decrease libido. And it's really quite unfortunate because it will have uh, adverse effects on your ability to go out and find a mate, and it will also potentially have adverse effects on your ability to uh, maintain a marriage. And in the book, I don't know if you read the um, interview I did with Dr. Lionel Tiger, but Dr. Lionel Tiger, who's an anthropologist, did this research. I mean, isn't he a remarkable man? I mean, back in the 70s, he was warning women about this potential side effect uh, of taking the birth control pill, and he was testing the birth control pill on female primates. 
And when a female primate was taking the birth control pill, the male primates were not interested in her because she was chemically pregnant. So why would he be interested in her, right? Mm-hmm. And so... And so you put, it changes your whole aura, if you will, if you're taking the birth control pill. And millions of young women, you know, uh, women of all ages for that matter, are using the birth control pill today, and they are not being told of any potential side effects. And, and one of the side effects, as I'm sure you know, is, is increased risk of developing cancer. Um, mm-hmm. But what is not being talked about, of course, is this problem where, uh, intimacy, where developing and maintaining relationships is concerned. And that is a huge, huge problem. Yeah, you got the uh, the chemical pregnancy thing. So men are actually avoiding uh, the men are actually avoiding the women because they can kind of get some kind of vibe that's going on that's saying, oh, the women are already pregnant because they're taking uh, birth control pills. So it's actually affecting the men. But another thing that you touch on in the book, and this is going to kind of be my last question. I just wanted you to talk about this uh, as well, because I don't think that we talk about enough, is just online dating and also Mm -hmm. the effect of the Internet and porn and how that has the effect of men not really wanting to go out in the real world and, you know, talk to women and say, hey, you know what, I'm interested in Mm -hmm. you. Let's do this this Mm -hmm. adult thing and have sex. But (laughs) you have the advent of you know, men wanting to sit in their rooms and watch porn versus being out in the real world and talking to a girl and getting a phone number and going from there. Yeah, real-time activities, right? I mean, my book is essentially about the decline of human sexuality, and I had to include this topic because I talk to young men on a regular basis, and they have become addicted uh, to Internet porn, and they cannot go out and bond normally with a woman. And, of course, this is going to have uh, terrible effects on their self-esteem, on their ability to interact in society. If they desire to get married and have children, I mean, (laughs) I'm sorry, (laughs) their chances of that happening are going to be very slight. Um, Because, you know, uh, a lot of healthy women, uh, and I mean healthy uh, in all regards, including sexually, you know, they're not going to be able to compete uh, with what these men are seeing in terms of online pornography. They can't compete with that. And so for some men, that's all that, that's going to um, stimulate them. So being with a real woman uh, is meaningless to them. It's, it's not exciting to them. They can't, no, there's no interest. And so this is leading to the breakdown in terms of male-female interactions. This is leading to a breakdown in terms of uh, uh, finding relationships, maintaining relationships. And, uh, of course, this is going to have implications in terms of uh, our, our ability to procreate. Uh, it, it's, it's got devastating uh, effects on society, but because it's the elephant in the room, because it's a dirty subject, nobody wants to talk about it. But I'm telling you, if you're a parent, if you're an uncle, if you're a grandparent, you know, you need to be concerned about your grandchildren. You need to be concerned about your nieces and your nephews. You need to uh, do more to help make sure that what they look at online, that they you know, have some kind of education around the implication of potentially becoming addicted to these things. And Darren, I'm no prude and I'm no Puritan. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying we have crossed the line in the sand where this is concerned. And I think more people need to be, you know, talking about this subject. I see that there are men's groups that are being formed because they just do not want to see their 
sons uh, get entrapped in that world on the Internet. They want their sons to understand what normal, healthy sexuality is. And so they do their utmost to try and combat uh, the pornography industry, but they're a huge, 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 multi-billion-dollar-a-year industry. I mean, you exactly, can't yeah. fight that giant. You cannot fight it. Uh, so, at a grassroots level, I think people do need to do more to make sure that, especially young men, are protected from knowing the ramifications of the potential to become addicted to that world. Yeah, and do, one of the things in the book that I kind of raised my eyebrow at again was the fact that only 38% of married people say that they're happy. 38%. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, it goes to show you, you have to be healthy to be happy, right? It's not exactly. happy to be healthy. You have to be healthy to be happy. And uh, millions of people out there are really only lucky to be running on four cylinders. You know, they're not healthy out there. And, and so you have to get healthy first before you can be happy. Yeah, it's a shame that most of the time when you see couples together, they are in their own tub of mi uh, misery. You know, most of them, the woman is overweight, the guy is overweight. And healthy, being healthy is kind of next to being happy. And a lot of people aren't happy just because mm -mm. they're not healthy. But you see, yeah, but the problem is is they believe that they just have to change their thinking. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And that they're, they're not thinking the right thoughts because you have to think happy thoughts in order to be healthy. But that's not true. right? That's why people are stuck in the trap is because they're being misinformed on that issue. They really need to understand that you really can't think happy thoughts uh, unless you're healthy. So get healthy first and then the happy thoughts will follow. Yeah, exactly. Change your diet. <laughs> exactly. Get your get rid get rid of the uh, the copper. Get your bile going. Right. Eat three square meals a day. I know it doesn't sound sexy. It doesn't sound new. It doesn't sound exciting. But eat your three squares. Uh, you know that's a breakfast, lunch, and dinner that you know Laura Ingalls would recognize from the 1800s. So eat your bacon and egg style breakfast. Eat your meat and potato style lunch and dinner. Make sure that potato or cooked vegetable is, or cooked vegetables are loaded with butter and high-fat sour cream. You know, but stay very consistent with those types of uh, food goals. And um, that's how we know. That's when we ate that way, we were healthy. You know, there's no guesswork yeah. involved there. Yeah, exactly right. right. Pam Colleen, the book is Survival of the Unfittest, How Wisdom Will Save Humans from Falling into Extinction. Your book is available on Amazon, right? It's available on Amazon. It's uh, in ebook format and it's in paperback. And I just want to let people know that next uh, Friday, the 18th of September, I'm going to be doing a presentation on the Children's Health Summit. It's the Children's healthsummit.com and uh, so I'll be, talk I'll be talking to the host of that summit about a lot of these concepts as well and uh, because really um, my addiction book and this survival book they are both a call, a call to action because we have to do our utmost to make sure that we protect our children because um, I'm very very concerned about uh, their, their state of health today and I think we need to do more to help protect them yeah, I agree with you on that. There's a lot of things going on with kids, and I plan on having more shows uh, about children. I had Doris Rapp on talking a couple months ago about food sensitivity in children. I'm very adamant about that. I think a lot of kids are going through unnecessary operations with their ears and different things when it's a matter of just pulling certain things out of their diets if they, you know, if they can, if they can be tested. So 
I plan on having a lot more shows about just different issues that affect kids. And I was recently in um, Venice, Florida. I went on vacation not maybe a month or two ago and saw an article. I came across an article in the Tampa school system here in Florida where so many kids were having mental health issues. I'm like, wow, when I was in school, there was none of that. Kids were not Mm-mm. having mental health issues, and I think it goes back to nutrition. We're just not eating the right thing. You see kids eating Doritos and drinking sodas and all of this mm-hmm. stuff, and it's just bad. Well, I, oh, listen, I, I mean, this is one of my main platforms. I mean, right here in uh, the city I live in, which is London, Ontario, the Thames Valley School Board had their teachers do a survey Uh, or did a survey among their teachers, I should say, and they um, estimated that about 28% of their students had some kind of mental health problem. And, of course, uh, their answer is to, uh, you know, put these kids on medications. You know, I mean, they're not looking at nutrition. Believe me, they are not looking at nutrition, not in 2015, uh, which is really tragic. I've been trying to get through to the school boards now for well over 10 years and they're not ready to listen because they still have their vending machines in there they still have junk food at the at the uh, cafeterias Um, this is going to be a very 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 long and arduous task is to get the school system to improve um, school nutrition for the children and if they say if they claim that they are improving school nutrition darren the trouble is is they still promote a high carb low fat diet so giving children salad and soy or lean meats is still not solving the problem at all. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Pam Colleen, thank you for being on the show tonight. Hopefully I'll get you back and we'll talk about your addiction book because I actually really would love to talk about that one. And uh, But thank you so <laughs> much great. for being on the show tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Darren. You take care now. You too. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Guys, I think I had 30-something questions, and I did not even get to half of those questions. The book is chock full of information. If you have a chance, go to survive, go to Amazon, get an ebook form, or get a hardcover book, Survival of the Unfittest. There's a lot of unconventional information in here. If you're a couple and you're struggling with your weight, your husband and your wife, a lot of stuff in here that you need to know to get yourself healthy if you're trying to conceive versus uh, wanting to use fertility drugs, this is a good book to, to, to get in order to be able to conceive. And if you are um, conceiving, how to take care of yourself, you knowing what to stay away from. I know that a lot of you listening may have children who are teenagers uh, going into college or whatever and may be looking at getting on the pill as a birth control method. And it's something, you know, read this book and it may change your mind about uh, taking the pill and all the, the problems that, that you see when, when doing that. But next week, we have Dr. Janet Star Hall, and we're going to be talking about, I believe she has a 10 steps to detoxification. So we'll be talking about that next week. And um, I'm about to get out of here and go out here and meet Troy Casey. Troy is from California, he happens to be in Florida. So um, I'm going to meet him in person, and uh, if you haven't listened to his show, I think I interviewed He's probably like one of my first five interviews, and he's the certified health nut, so I'm going to get out here and meet him. And again, we'll have Dr. Janet Star Hall on the 10 Steps of Detoxification next Wednesday, same fat time, same fat channel. Thank you for listening. Peace and love, and I'll see you soon.